Yeah, 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 yeah. Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. There's a literary technique that you might have heard of before. It's called stream of consciousness, in which a narrator just free associates and hops from topic to topic without any readily apparent connection among those topics. And the idea is basically that if you weave these topics together, you can get a vibe of what's going on in the narrator's head. You can psychoanalyze the narrator, maybe, and see some sort of poetic or thematic pattern in all of his banter. Anyway, it was really popular for a while in literature of the 19-teens and 20s during a movement called Modernism, which, if I'm remembering correctly, was influenced by the theories of Sigmund Freud and Albert Einstein and the general idea that the large narratives in our lives and society are really just fractured constellations of tinier stories. Or at least that's part of it. What you also find happening in that in the period of Modernism is the birth of cinema, and cinema is montage. It's a bunch of different images being spliced together to give you the illusion of movement and cohesion. Also, at this time, we were coming out, we were getting into and coming out of World War I, and developments in communication were kind of making the Western world more mindful of geopolitics, each country being a kind of microcosm in a larger network. Anyway, part of the reason it's been almost a month since I uploaded an episode of Thousand Movie Project Podcast is because I was tinkering with a script for an episode that was written in a stream-of-consciousness format, in some rambling effort to make a point about how I should be more optimistic or something. It was it was really stupid, but I have this issue where if I work on something for three or four hours and it clearly sucks and it's not worth following through on, I just keep fucking working on it. I don't know when to let projects go. And what'll happen is I will appreciate the fact that this script sucks and that it should not be developed into a podcast, but rather than just moving on to something else, I will postpone the podcast until I've made the script into something that I deem to be adequate. But uh, you see what happens, I end up not not releasing anything for a month. But I need to get on with the show, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to relay to you what I thought were the good bits of that script, and then I'm going to let it go. Because it's not salvageable. The premise of the script is that it's Sunday morning, it's 8am, and I'm on 8th Street. And here's where I'm going to spatter in some, like, sounds of a mildly busy street. I'm at the window of a place called Arahi's Bakery Number 2, where I get a colada in the morning. And in the script, I'm standing there, and I'm schmoozing, and I'm noticing what's going on with this homeless person over there, and that homeless person over here. And I was talking in this script about how there's this young woman, she's probably 16 or 17, and I've seen her a couple times at the window. She's got Down Syndrome, and she shows up here very early in the morning, and she's got two things with her every time. She's got a $10 bill and a handwritten note. And she hands these two things to the woman at the window. The woman goes inside, prepares the order, comes out with it, and the young woman takes it and goes back home. And what I started thinking about, and what was chronicled in the script, is the fact that I've only seen this young woman performing this errand maybe five or six times in the two years that I've lived in the area. And then I started thinking, well, it's actually possible that I've only seen her on weekend mornings. Because if she's in high school, as she appears to be, then she would normally be in class at this hour. But it's quarantine now, and schools are out of session. It was stupid and rambling and digressive. You can see how it was exhausting itself. I just went on this Joycean riff, trying to chronicle every little thing that I could see while standing on that street corner, sipping a colada on a Sunday morning in Little Havana. 
And part of it is that I wanted to have a record, something I could listen to years from now and be like, wow, shit, this is perfectly evoking that moment, that place, that period in my life. And I'm sympathetic, in retrospect, to how that might, that might have been a nice little gift for me, for my future self. But it wasn't going to be interesting to anybody else. Plus, I was talking to somebody on Hinge earlier this week, and, and in the course of conversation, I mentioned that I do a podcast, which comes up on a regular basis when I'm talking to people on Hinge. But this was the first person to ever ask me what the show is called, and to then go and listen to an episode. She listened to the most recent episode, which is about how my therapist and I bought the same vibrator at one point, and about this terrible sexual experience that I had in New York. Not a glowing first impression. But she listened to it, and she reached out, and she said some nice things. Made me feel pretty good about myself. Made me feel pretty good about the podcast. And so I thought, you know, it's been about a month since I made that last episode. Let me check it out again. Let me see what it's like. And so I'm walking home from a coffee shop yesterday, and I'm listening to that previous episode of the podcast, and I was like, wow, this is fucking terrible. And I was so embarrassed, just thinking, this joke doesn't land, that joke doesn't land. It was a huge fucking bummer. But then, after a while, I got my shit together, and I was like, look... All of this stuff I'm hearing on, on, on that episode, the stuff that I don't particularly like, there is no question that it was the best I could have done that week. I worked hard on it, I had a good time with it, it is what it is. So what I plan to do now is just write and prepare these episodes to the best of my ability and then fuck off and never listen to any of these episodes again. Because all I hear are mistakes and shortcomings. There is no point in doubling back and subjecting myself to it. I am not the audience for this podcast, is basically what I'm saying. I, Alex, am not my type. I even have this problem while masturbating. I put some lotion in my palm and I reach for my dick and then I freeze and I go, I, I have a headache, I have to wake up early. The point being, I was bending over backwards trying to make this artsy, Joycean, stream of consciousness episode because I was trying to satisfy what I thought was like a conceptually interesting episode. I know that if I'm ever going to get an episode done, I need to talk about things that immediately hold my attention. And when I look at that script and I find the thing that I most want to talk about, frankly, it's that young woman with Down syndrome and her routine of getting the handwritten note and the $10 bill and coming here to the window to take her family breakfast. Because it reminded me of something notable that had happened several years ago. Several years ago, I was eating a U-Pick 2 at Panera Bread. It was a turkey sandwich and a bowl of wild rice soup with a chunk of French bread on the side. Now, should I have opted for the apple instead of a hunk of French bread to complete my carbohydrate menage? Yes, I should have gotten the apple. But this was right after college. I was 22 years old, and I had the fastest metabolism in the West. When I took a shit, you could hear it ricochet in the bowl. So I got my bread and my bowl of rice and my side of bread, and I sat on the patio of Panera Bread, and suddenly... As I'm sitting there eating, somebody came up to me and tapped me on the shoulder, and when I turned around, I saw that this person had Down syndrome, but there was something distinct about his appearance. He said to me, hi, how are you? And I said, I'm good, how are you? And he said, I'm glad to hear that, I'm good too. And after that, he just carried on toward Marshalls with a much older man who I'm guessing was his father. And the reason I say that he went towards Marshalls with a much older man is because this man the one with Down syndrome who had approached me, I noticed only after he'd left that he had white hair. He was himself an older man, maybe in his 50s or his late 40s. So I go on surrendering my body to the gods of wheat, and it occurs to me, I have never seen a person with Down syndrome who had white hair. 
I've never seen a person with Down syndrome who appeared to be even middle-aged, I think. And I hadn't thought about this guy for years, but suddenly, standing here on 8th Street on a Sunday morning and seeing this young woman with Down syndrome picking up her family's breakfast, it's coming back to my mind, and I'm thinking, do people with Down syndrome have a shorter life expectancy? So I went to Google, and I typed in something like, do people with Down syndrome have other health problems? And the first thing that came up, the kind of sample text, you know, sometimes when you type a, a question into Google, Google tries to answer the question for you, and then it gives you the search results underneath it. Well, there was that bit of text at the top of the screen, and it was a passage that said in a surly tone, people with Down syndrome are individuals. They are all different, and their condition varies in severity, and it comes with its own set of problems, etc., etc. It had such a tone that I felt like I was being reprimanded for having asked this question. So now I've got this nervous pit in my stomach and I'm thinking, is it fucked up of me to even wonder about something like this? Because while I do feel like knowledge is knowledge, information is good to have, it's healthy to be curious, I do also feel kind of weird going to Google and being like, do people with Down syndrome die quickly? Because in asking such a question, it sounds like I'm studying them. Like I'm looking at them as some kind of curious organism instead of human beings. And so I realized that such a line of questioning can be insensitive, and maybe even kind of fucked up. That being said, I still want to know! And if I'm curious about it, I think it's safe to say that other people are probably curious about it too. And so I don't see why we can't conduct a respectful inquiry. And so here it is, the findings of my respectful inquiry. According to the National Institute of Childhood Health and Human Development, about half of babies born with Down syndrome suffer CHD, congenital heart disease, which exists on a spectrum of severities. Also, many babies born with Down syndrome have hearing issues, which in some cases has to do with the shape of the inner ear. It's also common for people with Down syndrome to have compromised immune systems, which can often make them mortally susceptible to infections, and they're also much more likely to suffer from leukemia, epilepsy, spinal problems, and hypothyroidism. So the condition comes with hurdles, and according to the Global Down Syndrome Foundation, the life expectancy of somebody with Down syndrome is age 60, which has more than doubled from 1983, when the average life expectancy of a person with Down syndrome was just 25 years old. So that's interesting. I'm glad to have that information, even though it feels, for some reason, like I shouldn't be curious about that. But why does it feel wrong to wonder? I'm not sure. But you know what feels even more taboo than wondering about the life expectancy of someone with Down syndrome? Wondering about their sex life. But again, I do think there's room for respectful inquiry with sensitive topics. So let's have a glancing look at an article called Sexual Life in Subjects with Intellectual Disability by Louise Conaud and Lauren Servaire, MD, PhD. I'm going to quote two passages from their study that I found particularly interesting. The first one says this, In our study, 82% of mildly disabled women living in a co-ed facility previously experienced sexual intercourse, whereas only 4% of those living in a non-co-ed facility claim to have experienced sexual intercourse. In the study of McGillivary, 46% of mildly and moderately intellectually disabled people with no prior experience communicated that they intended to become sexually active as soon as the opportunity presented. 
McCabe reported similar findings in another group of 60 community-dwelling Australians with mild intellectual disabilities. Approximately 58% of those participants had previously experienced sexual intercourse, and 31% were currently sexually active, with frequency ranging from almost never to very often. Individuals with intellectual disabilities were significantly less sexually active than peers with physical disabilities and the general population. Now let's contrast that passage with the next one. Puchel and Scola interviewed the parents of 73 teenagers with Down syndrome, 36 males and 37 females. Despite the fact that over half of the teenagers had expressed an interest in the opposite sex, and masturbation had been noticed in 40% of the males and 22% of the females, only four sets of parents reported that their son or daughter ever mentioned a desire for sexual intercourse. Now, the author of this paper goes on to say that the second study, the one I just quoted, uh, might not be so reliable as the first one, because it wasn't the subjects that were interviewed, the actual teenagers with Down syndrome. Those scientists from that second study interviewed the parents. So this is, this is the thing that I'm contending with. I am curious about something to do with the private lives of people with learning disabilities. I think it's an interesting topic. But I also feel weird and voyeuristic to even find myself curious about something so intimate as their life expectancy or their sexuality. And yet, when I finally do the research, I not only find a bounty of, like, respectfully and professionally worded and thorough answers to these questions, I also find that Google hastens to finish my sentences when I'm trying to search it. It shows me that lots of people are Googling the same thing when they are alone and nobody's there to glare at them. But remember, there was that bit of text that I came across when I first tried to answer the question. The bit of text that began by telling me in strident language that people with Down syndrome are individuals and that each one of them is different, they suffer different things. It was employing language and a tone, suggesting that if I was here on this page at all, it meant I was asking a fucked up question. And when you think about it, it really is none of my business. I don't need to know how long a person with Down syndrome is expected to live. I don't need to know about the sex lives of people with learning disabilities. And in fact, if I had some visually apparent medical condition like Down syndrome, and I knew that everyone who looked at me was thinking, oh, I know he's not expected to live past 60, I would not be thrilled about that. I managed to get my hands on an early copy of Martin Amos's forthcoming memoir novel. It's called Inside Story. And there's a long section in the middle where he's talking about his best friend, the writer Christopher Hitchens, dying of esophageal cancer. And he talks about what Hitchens himself talks about in his posthumous book, Mortality, which, which is a small collection of essays. I highly recommend them. Uh, Christopher Hitchens wrote them from his deathbed, and he's got some really salient observations about death and how we try to fight it off. Anyways, what both Hitchens and Amos talk about is entering the land of the sick where you go around to grocery stores and restaurants and you look enfeebled and you've lost your hair and you're pale and the crooks of your elbows are all bruised up from injections. Maybe you've got rashes on your body from the chemo. And they both notice that people just treat you differently. They treat you with gloves. They ennoble you. They, they, they're maybe over-solicitous. In the eyes of the people around you, you become the illness. You are no longer Christopher or Martin or whomever. You are the cancer patient. And there's definitely an argument to be made here that by broadcasting certain kinds of questions and observations, such as those having to do with the longevity of a person with a certain kind of ailment, I might be working to dehumanize the subject of the question. In other words, if I start broadcasting the fact that, you know, Christopher Hitchens has a life expectancy of, you know, six more years, 
It's likely that people will hear me say that and will start engaging with Christopher not as who he is, but as the ailing person. As, and that sounds like a poignant argument to me. I'm not quite done negotiating the ethics of such an issue. All I know is I do sincerely wonder about these things. And coming at them fresh from that fucking stream of consciousness nonsense where I was not being true to my interests, I know that if I'm going to really be who I am, if I'm going to keep myself interested in life, if I'm going to find it worth living, worth performing, then I think I'm going to have no choice but to ask these questions and scratch these itches of curiosity. And I guess the key is to just be as polite about it as possible. goes another episode. I want to start out this epilogue by saying that this particular episode of Thousand Movie Project Podcast is sponsored largely by Emma Jackson of New Orleans, who reached out via Instagram to say some very nice out-of-the-blue things about the podcast, which I think I kind of needed to hear. She had no way of knowing as we were speaking that I was actively working on an episode this one in particular which has a huge segment about how consistently disappointed i am with the out like with the final product of the podcast and how increasingly skeptical i'm becoming of like the numbers that i see in the analytics like it's hard to, it's hard to imagine that people are actually listening to this but yeah she said some wonderful things which completely helped to refocus my energies on the episode and she threw a little money my way she looked up the thousand movie project handle on venmo which is all one word you are all welcome to throw some money my way too the money will all be filtered back into the podcast which is not an exorbitant process but it's got it's it's got its expenses so emma says that she's been binging a good amount of the podcast while road tripping this summer and i want to say that i am honored to be your buddy on the road emma jackson this episode of the podcast you may have noticed is a short one because i am just now trying to muscle myself back into the swing of like writing a script, editing the script, recording the script, editing the recording. It's like a, it's a it's a cumbersome process, but it's a fairly easy regimen to maintain so long as I hold on to the momentum. But I lost that momentum last month because I was trying to get back into the groove with blogging. What I'm trying to say here is that if you want to hear me natter about things even just in your head, if the podcast does not suffice, you can now do that on a daily basis at thousandmovieproject.com. Now that the city of Miami is basically shut down again, I'm only ever leaving my apartment to, like, go get food at Walgreens, which is a few blocks down. Or there's, like, a, a diner window near my apartment, and I go there every morning to get some coffee. And every few days, I go a, a few blocks down the road to the laundromat to do laundry. I was not—okay, now—this is—all right. This is the this is the epilogue, and there's not supposed to be a structure, but now I just mentioned the laundromat, so I have to tell—we're going to digress. <laughs> Okay, speaking of the laundromat, I was literally just there this morning. My laundromat has two vending machines, and I really like them because everything in the vending machine is super cheap. And they're kind of old, these vending machines. They're like 2004-looking vending machines, and they appear to be priced at 2004 prices. Every can of soda in the soda machine is $1. The Pepsi, the Sprite, the Materva, the Diet Materva. And then there's a snack machine right beside the soda machine, and there's only one thing in the snack machine that costs more than a dollar. And it's only a dollar twenty-five. It's one of those, it's like, the, it's those big sticky roll things that come in a bag. They're always on the bottom, the bottom shelf of the vending machine, which I've never eaten, incidentally, because for one thing, I'm not all that tempted by sweets, especially confections. Like, I'm, I'm more susceptible to gummy bears than I am to cake. But also because at every point in my life that I have approached a vending machine, no matter how hungry or flush I was with cash, I would see that brand of sticky bun, I would recognize it as the most expensive option in the machine, and I would say, fuck that, I'm not a sucker. 
but really it's only ever like a dollar twenty-five, maybe two dollars on Brickle. But spe- speaking of the la- of the vending machines at the laundromat, there's one particular episode of this podcast ever since the reboot like a year ago where I suddenly realized what I was doing that I cannot stand to listen to because it's t- it makes me cringe so hard. It's so terrible. One of the things I mentioned in that episode is that the sodas are so cheap at my laundromat's vending machines that sometimes I'll go to Pasión del Cielo or Starbucks or some other place and I'll, I'll grab a can of Coke. And the Coke is like $3, which just which feels kind of ridiculous. I don't know if you if you feel this way, but all of these recent memes about Karen, like the stereotype of like the very obnoxious and entitled and pompous kind of white suburban mom who always wants to speak to the manager and feels wronged by the fact that her sandwich order is missing a condiment. I have an inner Karen and she is fierce and these memes have helped me become a better person about like policing that impulse because on a regular basis this is okay. This is this is one of the ongoing arenas in which I have to fight that particular demon. I go on a regular basis to a restaurant called the Corner of Bango Bistec. It's down here in Little Havana, and I shit you not, they have the best Cuban sandwich I have ever had in my life. And it's only $4.50. But it's also only the best Cuban sandwich I've ever had in my life if they leave the mayonnaise off of it. If they leave the mayonnaise in their pocket or their scrotum or wherever they get it from, and it's not just their sandwich, I feel this way about every Cuban sandwich, There should we should never have introduced Elmer's glue to the occasion of the Cuban sandwich because they apply it by the fucking ladle, and then the sandwich- okay. If you take- if you just leave that out, it has just the right balance of like savoriness and spiciness and pinch, all they have to do is leave off the mayo. And I thought I was being very clear about sin mayonesa por favor, but it it never works. And so lately I've tried to emphasize it when I place my order, go to the window and I say, un sandwich cubano por favor, sin mayonesa. And then I karate chop the air, sin mayonesa. And they do it again. And then they balk at me and they- I can tell they're asking me like why I just made that gesture, but I can't explain because my Spanish isn't good enough. So I just do it again, sin mayonesa. What do you think I end up finding on my Cuban sandwich? If your answer is mayonesa, you're only partly correct. The correct answer is mucho mucho mayonesa. mayonesa. I never see them do it. You know, they they prepare the sandwich, they hand it to me, and then I go home, I sit down on the couch, I open the sandwich, and there I see a bunch of mayo, and I'm like, fuck, I can't believe you've done this. And honestly, after six or seven consecutive times that they have forgotten to leave off the mayonesa, I can feel her. I can feel Karen getting stronger inside me and she wants to talk to the manager and she wants to put a fist on her hip and pull out her oversized cell phone and 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 hold up yelp and point at the screen like it's a detonator but i don't let that happen because inherent to the karen is an oversight of the fact that people working behind counters are human beings who fuck shit up like the rest of us and that this job of theirs behind the counter preparing food is not their life for me to like get testy with them for the fact that they are constantly squirting mayonnaise on my sandwich is like suggesting it's it's almost like suggesting to them hey you were born for this so why aren't you flawless at it nobody was born to make 300 cuban sandwiches a day i can i can scrape off the mayo when i get home it's fine they also have one of the best chicken sandwiches i've ever had in my life it is the tops check it out uh esquina de pan am i pronouncing that right fuck i hate speaking spanish on this because i know people are gonna be like tee <laughs> it's called it's the Spanish translation of the corner of Banco Bistec on 8th Street and something like, I don't know, 13th Avenue. But let's get back to the real topic here. The vending machines at my laundromat. The snack, the snack and soda machines at my laundromat are so compellingly affordable that every time I'm there, I end up saying to myself, I might not be craving a 50 cent pack of peanut butter cracker sandwiches. I might not be actively craving that, but when is the next time 
I'm going to see a bargain like this. And also, those crackers are salty, and so I would need a Pepsi to go with it. Which, incidentally, I have never in my life bought a 12-pack of Pepsi, but I have very often chosen a can of Pepsi over a can of Coke. Even though I and most Americans agree that Coca-Cola is the, is the superior product, especially, incidentally, if we're talking about Coke and Pepsi as they are served in plastic bottles, which is a whole different beast. I think Pepsi tastes like a like a like a like an outright lab chemical when you're drinking it from a plastic 20 ounce bottle. I frankly don't think any soda tastes good out of plastic bottles. I think it's got to come out of either a can or those little aluminum eight ounce bottles that they now sell. Speaking of which, okay, one time in New York. Okay, hold on. One time I was in New York. I was staying at a hotel and, that had a bar in the lobby, and I went there to the bar to meet a high school friend. Surprisingly, this this high school friend of mine happened to be staying at the same hotel at the same time. So I go down to the bar and I order a jack and coke and i said so i sit down i order the jack and coke and the bartender says hey so here's how we do it um i can pour you i'm gonna pour you an ounce and a half of jack daniels and then i'm gonna pour in some coke from this eight ounce bottle but i'm gonna have to sell them to you separately so just so you know on your check it's gonna say that you got a shot of jack daniels and a little can of coke can bottle aluminum bottle of coke and i said yeah that's cool that's fine bartender steps away he fixes the drink and he brings it over to me and he sets the remainder of the coke bottle beside it so my friend joins me at the bar we catch up we chat for a while i drink the booze and then i drink the rest of the soda and when i get the bill i see that the shot of jack daniels cost it cost whatever whatever one pays in new york city for a shot of whiskey it cost a vial of blood and the rights to my first novel i don't remember but then i saw that the eight ounce bottle of coke cost nine dollars and i balked and i was like your coke is a dollar an ounce but that was my inner Karen. But anyways, laundromat. Okay, I'm tempted by the salty peanut butter cracker sandwiches. I buy them and then I buy a soda to accompany the peanut butter sandwiches. And that makes for a nice pair. The salty, the sweet. But all that this seems to do is to like open up my appetite like a flower. It just makes me more hungry. And so then I go and I'm like, well, fuck, the, everything in the machine is so cheap. So I get a bag of chips for 75 cents or whatever. By the end of it, I've spent like three bucks. And $3 is not as cheap as $1. And I started to think, like, is this is this part of a business model? Because if so, it's brilliant. Like, you trap people in a laundromat for an hour, and then you tempt them with really cheap snacks. But you make sure that every one of those snacks in those machines will make you lust for another one. So it's not really the bargain, like, big picture-wise, it's not really the bargain that you think it is. Like, one time I was at a bar in my senior year of college, and it was Sandbar in the Grove. And this gorgeous woman with an iPad came up to me. And iPads were still fairly new and, like, wildly expensive at the time. And she said, Hi, I'm from Marlboro, and if you give us your home address, we can give you a free pack of cigarettes right now. And I'd never smoked a cigarette in my life at that point, but same sensibility that I carry into the laundromat. I was like, when am I ever going to see a bargain like this again? So I gave her my home address and she gave me a pack of now that I've actually <laughs> now that I'm actually saying this out loud I realize how fucking stupid that was. That is like first grade stranger danger bullshit. <laughs> I can't believe I give a stranger my home address <laughs> for cigarettes. Okay, anyways, um what was I saying? Okay, I gave her my address, she gives me the Marlboros and then suddenly I was a smoker kind of for a little while. Like whenever I was out drinking with somebody or I was, at, I was at a party and someone pulled out cigarettes, I would have one. But then I dated a smoker and then I dated another smoker. Anyways, it, it was a, a short-lived thing, but it made me realize in my two years of very occasional smoking, I probably bought, I don't know, 10 packs of cigarettes over the course of those two years. But that was like fucking $120. 
I spent $120 over the course of two years because on one night in my senior year of college, a very pretty woman with an iPad asked for my address. <laughs> my point is that the free pack wasn't free. You know what I mean? Because like it created a very expensive habit that was short-lived, but it was expensive. And also it might have given me cancer. What's funny though is this, I gave them my parents' home address, I didn't give them my, my, my dorm address, of course, that would be ridiculous. So I gave them the address where my parents lived, and um, I moved back to my parents' house at the end of that senior year of college, and I started to notice that every single month we would get two black envelopes in the mail from Marlboro. Totally black. Even Marlboro's stationery looks cancerous. And one of those black envelopes would be addressed to me, and the other one was addressed to my brother. It turns out we were at the same bar at the same time, and we were both approached by the same woman. We both gave her our address in exchange for free cigarettes. I, I don't even remember where this started. Um, another thing that's happened since the last episode of the podcast is that I finally finished editing the second draft of the book that I've been working on since December. It's taking longer than expected, but I will keep you posted on that. I think there's a pretty good chance that this book is going to end up being self-published, so I will also keep you grievously appraised of that. Also, I've been listening to this past week to a BBC program from like 2007-2009, thereabouts. It's called A Point of View, and I think that it's a show on which a handful of different intellectuals come and they present like a 10-minute column. It's a really simple setup. But in these 10-minute programs, I've been listening particularly to those by Cl the author Clive James, who was at this time in his 70s. He died last year. And in these columns, he's talking about whatever's on his mind. And I am absolutely loving it. It's got the vibe of, 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 of literally just a weekly newspaper column, and it is funny, and it's insightful, and it's well-structured. And I have decided, temporarily, going forward with the podcast, that that's kind of the structure I'm going to adopt here. I'm going to have one big monologue, maybe two segments, as opposed to, like, the four segments that I was somehow able to do for so long. I would like to be able to do a 40-minute episode every week, but, um, with four segments or whatever, but I, uh, just working on the book, working on the blog... Working, the, working my job, running errands, it just, also my constant dancing, my constant dancing. Siempre bailando. All of that is taking a lot of time, and I just can't, I can't do really long podcasts. Also, the prospect of doing a new 40-minute episode every week is definitely going to discourage me so that I start getting sluggish about it. So, the next few episodes, at least, while I'm working on this book, trying to get it out of my fucking life, um... They're going to be fairly short. I'm taking a cue from these Clive James columns. Incidentally, I will leave a link to the Clive James things in the description for this episode. And I want to remind you before I go that the blog, on the other hand, will be robust with activity. And um, if not exactly daily posts, they will average out to daily posts. So I might skip a day here or there, but I will post two posts the next day or three. Thank you again for listening. And a special thanks once again to Emma Jackson in New Orleans. I appreciate your support. I appreciate you listening. I appreciate that of all of you. Thanks again for listening, guys. Talk to you next time.